What's up all you hardheads out there? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Hardheaded Sports Podcast hosted by me, Nick Ryan. Thank you so much for joining me today for episode two of HHS. I'm really excited about the show that we've got today. We're going to be discussing a whole ton about the events that happened pretty much as soon as the episode on Monday was recorded, packed and shipped away. It felt like everything happened after that. And it's like, well, I'm going to have to wait a full day, gather my thoughts and put out a good show on Wednesday. And that's what we are going to do. We have a great show. We've got some new digs as well for those of you who are listening on spotify google podcasts and other streaming platforms you guys are not going to appreciate this as much as the folks on youtube are going to appreciate it but we've got some led lights in the studio gonna make things a little bit brighter make things a pop a little bit more and just give some pun intended bring some light to the situation uh, I, I'm really happy with them. Uh, the folks on YouTube, I hope that you guys are happy with them. Uh, for those of you who are on the streaming platforms, just imagine a nice purple aurora around me as we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly from the past two days in the sports world. There is no reason to delay. We've got a lot to talk about today. Could end up being a long show depending on how long I talk. We'll see. There is no set time for these things, but I'm just excited to get into everything, so let's get into everything. We're going to start, of course, with the national championship game. The Alabama Crimson Tide defeated the Ohio State Buckeyes by a score of 52-24 to on Monday night. It was a game that, on Monday, I said, well, if these two teams were completely healthy, and by these two teams, I'm speaking more on the Ohio State side, because Ohio State, by the time kickoff happened, had 13 players that were inactive, and multiple starters on the defense ended up getting scratched from the lineup at the very last minute. So I felt like if Ohio State was much healthier, they would have been able to contend with Alabama much more. But as we saw as the game unfolded, this Alabama Crimson Tide team might have been the best team that Nick Saban has ever had, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And really from the point where the Ohio State Buckeyes had their first three and out, it happened sometime in the second quarter, I believe. By the time that first three and out happened, that was all Alabama needed to kind of just ride away with this game. It felt like Ohio State really had no answers, and I kind of thought like it was going to be that going in, that as much as Ohio State tried, as much as the Buckeyes were going to continue to fight, which is a character trait of this team, especially exemplified by their quarterback Justin Fields, as a character trait, the Ohio State Buckeyes were fighters. They were very determined, very persevering team. And as much as they were able to do that throughout the regular season and into the college football playoff, I didn't think that they were going to be able to completely keep up with the Alabama Crimson Tide. And that's exactly what ended up happening. It was a back-and-forth competitive game up until that one three and out by the Buckeyes and that allowed Alabama to go down and score um and go up by two touchdowns, and then it was 35-14 by the half, and the game was pretty much over at that point. Ohio State did have a really good drive to open the second half, but that was about it. You just could not stop that Alabama offense. Um, but when you have a team like Ohio State that is down three, excuse me, not three, when you have a team like Ohio State that is down 13 
players to start the game, and you lose Trey Sermon on the on his first carry of the game. He goes out with an injury. There is not really much that you would have been able to do to be able to to keep up with an offense like uh, this Alabama Crimson Tide team had this year. Um, Ohio State, in the end, I think the storyline should be is that Ohio State was just too banged up to keep up with Alabama. Uh, they would have had a hard time doing it anyways, as we've as we've been discussing. But um, it, it was just over. It was over by by halftime. You could feel that there was nothing that Justin Fields and the Ohio State Buckeyes, especially on the defensive end, there was nothing that they had left in the tank um, to 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 be able to compete with this team. And of course, Justin Fields playing with a hip pointer. He, you know, he he played as well as he should with an injury like that. Um, he didn't turn the ball over. Uh, there, were, I believe, there was actually a fumble that was overturned. Um, not his fault though. He di- he didn't throw any inter- any interceptions. He did what you should do as a quarterback when you're not 100, percent and that's mostly game manage. That's let your stars. That's let your running back Trey Sermon. Of course, the game plan would have been if he did not get hurt run the ball, uh, Chris Olave on the outside of the wide receiver core, may, let him make some plays. Justin Fields did about as he could. So if there's anybody out there that's knocking Justin Fields for his performance in the national championship, just don't. <laughs> there's not really much that he could have done, especially against that Alabama defensive line, which is perennially good. Uh, Barrymore is going to be a fantastic pro um, defensive tackle, probably going, in my mind, in the late first round. But obviously the star of this national championship game was Devonta Smith, and he only needed two quarters to do it. 215 receiving yards in the first half. Uh, at one point, he had more pa- uh, receiving yards than the Buckeyes had total offense, and that's just mind-blowing. I mean, this kid is something special. I don't know of a receiver talent that was this dominant in a big game like this. In, in so long. I mean, Jamar Chase and um, LSU wide receiver core had a great game last year about the uh, against the Clemson Tigers, but Devonta Smith is something else of a talent. Uh, he is just so good, and, you know, it, part of it, I feel like, was the Ohio State defensive game plan, which was horrible. I, I don't understand why they were giving Devonta Smith, they were playing Devonta Smith about back about 15 yards, I understand you don't want to give up the big play to Alabama, but in the effort of trying to compete against that big play, they allowed Devonta Smith to get 15 to 20 yards in chunks nearly every single play. And I'm sitting there on my couch watching this game like, how the hell is this guy continuing to be this wide open? We know how good Devonta Smith is, and it feels like Ohio State knew, or at least they should have known how good Devonta Smith was, and it wasn't until late in the second quarter that they actually decided to try and cover the damn guy. It was absolutely incredible to me. Again, 215 yards on 12 receptions, uh, uh, three touchdowns, averaging 18 yards per catch. Just an unreal performance. If there was any doubt about who should have won the Heisman Trophy, I think this this nips it in the in the bud, puts it away. Of course, the other the other big man on campus, Mac Jones. Let me read you the stat line here: thirty six for forty five, four hundred and sixty four passing yards, 
Five touchdowns. Now, if this doesn't balloon Mac Jones' draft stock, I don't know what will. I think he's a for-sure first-rounder at this point. I would actually really like the Pittsburgh Steelers to take a look at Mac Jones and drafting him in their draft slot. I believe they're about 25, 26, if my memory serves correctly. And if you take a look at the, the 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 attributes of Mac Jones, he's very, very similar to Ben Roethlisberger. So if you're not trying to go for a complete regime change, which Mike Tomlin and Ben Roethlisberger have been running the Steelers offense for close to 10 years now, long, long time, uh, over 10 years, actually. I think, what, Mike Tomlin's in his 16th season? Something absolutely ridiculous. Uh, if you take a look at Mac Jones, not really a scrambler. He's got great decision-making, a very good arm. He could absolutely fit the, the mold that the Steelers have and have had for multiple years now. Um, I think that's a, a pick that they should explore. But Mac Jones, for somebody that was uh, in a QB competition at the beginning of the season with Bryce Young, who is also supposed to be very good, uh, I, I was really happy for Mac Jones to have the game that he did. I think he's a good quarterback. He's not going to be as good as like a Zach Wilson or a Justin Fields. I think at the next level at first, I think he needs to explore uh, and diversify his game a little bit, probably slim down a little bit, maybe work on upping that 40 time. But as a product of work, I was extremely impressed with Mac Jones. As I was extremely impressed with Devonta Smith, I think if the Dolphins don't take him at number three, it's going to be a mistake. Um, you know, it was funny, actually, my father messaged me last night saying, boy, uh, Devonta Smith would look really good in a Dolphins uniform, and it's hard to disagree. Um, I think if you take the chance, you reunite Tua with Devonta Smith, it would be really beneficial, especially for quarterback wide receiver chemistry. And, you know, I know we, we, we alluded to this on the uh, at some point in Monday's show, but a lot of people not really happy with Tua's first year, and I'm saying, well, look, it takes so long for a quarterback on a wide receiver court to get on the same page, um, especially when you have not played the first half of the year, the first six games, and you also have not played the preseason. I mean, even Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, was looking kind of eh for most of this season while he got on page with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers wide receiver core. Now that they're somewhat on page, their offense is looking much better. Imagine how much better Tua Tungavailoa is going to look with a wide receiver like Devonta Smith. Now, Devonta Parker, also a pretty good wide receiver. I think he's got dropping issues. He's got inconsistency issues. He is the player that the Miami Dolphins had to pay. I feel like they had to pay him to keep him. He's probably their best offensive weapon besides Mike Gusecki, who Mike Gusecki is only really decent. I mean, you take a look at a, his route running, and he looks like an 18-wheeler bumbling down a highway. He doesn't really try to break off the ball. He's just kind of a big target when you need one. So, Devonta Smith could look really good in a Dolphins uniform. I think it would be a mistake if they don't draft him. And the only other person that I would draft in his spot is the left tackle from Oregon. Uh, but I think even I think the Jets, if they are comfortable with Darno, they are going to probably draft the left tackle Selway. If I'm pronouncing that that or Penames, uh, excuse me, Penay Sewell. That's how you pronounce it. But we're kind of getting on a rabbit trail here. There's going to be plenty of time to talk about who's going to be drafting who over the next couple of months. Um, really, really impressed with Alabama. I would go on record saying that's the best team that Nick Saban has ever had. And if there's any question about it being an Alabama Crimson Tide dynasty, 
I think this solidifies it. I think he, Saban solidifies himself as the best college coach of all time, or at least number two. I mean, there, there's, there's probably no debate at this point. You know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stick to it, own up to it. Nick Saban's the best college coach of all time. Um, that's just my hard-headed opinion, but I'm but roll credits. But extremely impressed with Alabama in the national title game. Again, not really much Ohio State could do to keep up, and that's not necessarily their fault when you're down 13 players. Um, a lot of them on the defensive end, it looked like the Ohio State Buckeyes defense was just getting run around. And again, as I said earlier in the segment, you know, a lot of that I felt was the, the defensive game plan against the Alabama wide receiver core. It, they were giving them way too much space, and I don't understand why. I mean, I understand the thought you don't want to give up the big play. Don't give up big plays to Bama, but that only works if you're also not giving up chunk yardage to the receivers every single time Mac Jones stepped back to pass. There's a reason uh, that he had close to 500 yards passing, and th- that was pretty much the reason why is that Ohio State defensive backs were uh, giving the Alabama wide receiver car far too, uh, wide receiver core. Uh, excuse me, far too much space. Um, I'm excited to see what Alabama does next year. They're going to have uh, a lot of returning talent, especially on the defensive end. Um, But obviously losing a lot of pieces. But, um, you know, this this college football playoff was, in in all, it was a little disappointing in terms of the quality of games. Um, And I think... That if you're looking at for a reason to move on, you're looking for a reason to uh, revamp the college football playoff system, I think you take a look at this year and, I, and you say, yeah, we probably could have used more teams, even though Alabama was just leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else. I think you look at it and you say, yeah, we could probably use some more teams just in case a team pulls off a, mirac- a miraculous upset. A Texas A&M comes out of nowhere, plays the game of their lives, uh, and, and beats uh, a team like Alabama. Uh, at this point, we're just we're just dreaming about what ifs, ands, and buts. Um, so, uh, very impressed with Alabama. Feel bad for Ohio State. They never really had a chance in this game, but because of their injuries, how could you keep up with uh, an offense that you would have had to play really well against to keep up with anyways? So, uh, the other... <clears throat> or not the other, the next thing that uh, happened on Monday, something that we weren't able to talk about on the show on Monday, but uh, Doug Peterson was fired by the Philadelphia Eagles late Monday afternoon. It was closer to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, very late news on Monday. And I've had a, a full day to stew and gather my thoughts because I disagreed with this firing, I disagreed with this move. It made very little sense to me. Now, some people are like, well, he, he tanked. He, he tanked at the end of the season. Of course, you know, you would want to fire him. He's lost the locker room. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, potentially he's lost a couple of players. But do you really think that the Eagles locker room could get any worse than it already was by the end of the season with the amount of drama that Carson Wentz had kicked up? Over the remaining five weeks of the season? I mean, really? Come on. No. Doug Peterson getting fired was not because he tanked. Um, It wasn't because of the Carson Wentz situation specifically, although I think... 
the Carson Wentz situation has a big piece to do with it, namely his contract uh, and what to do with him moving forward. Um, but Doug Peterson was fired late Monday after a meeting with Jeffrey Lurie, who going into it, the perception was, okay, they're just meeting. They're going to hash things out. Doug Peterson is going to be back next year to try to make amends for the horrible season that the Philadelphia Eagles had this season. And obviously at the end of it, something changed in that meeting to where Jeffrey Lurie was like, we need to move on for Doug Peterson. Um, Lurie's been the owner of the team for 25 years. Doug Peterson, obviously been the coach since 2016. Um, uh, reports or the, the story being Lori chose to part ways with Peterson over a discrepancy of vision in how the team was going to look and is going to look over the past couple of years or, or excuse me, the next couple of years, whether it's a decision to lock and load, reload, try and win again very soon. Or what Doug Peterson was advocating for, or excuse me, what Jeffrey Lurie was advocating for, which was, okay, let's try and win in a couple of years while we work some things out. Which, by the way, is the side that I would be on if I'm sitting as a third person, if I'm sitting as a fly in the wall in that room during that conversation, I would say you should probably wait considering that you're $82 million in the hole in cap space. Um, but regardless... Uh, Peterson was reportedly focusing on winning in 2021. Lori was focused on the mid to long-term success of the Philadelphia Eagles, which, you know, at this point, I don't really see the NFC East getting better. So you do have time to try and get some draft picks. You do have time to relock uh, or to, to reload while the NFC East is still so bad. I mean, you can still win games against this division. Um, but yeah, uh, Peterson was the coach for four years, won the Super Bowl in 2017, the first Super Bowl uh, since joining the NFL for the Philadelphia Eagles, the first championship since, I believe, 1960 uh, for the franchise. But first Lombardi Trophy, first Super Bowl win. Doug Peterson should have a statue out in front of the stadium with his name on it. Um, but again, he finds himself fired today because of a discrepancy in vision. Uh and, you know, the, the situation with the Philadelphia Eagles really isn't Doug Peterson's fault. And it, it's re it really falls on Howie Roseman more than anybody else. So when I'm taking a look at Doug Peterson and I'm taking a look at the body of work of him and both Howie Roseman over the past decade, Philadelphia fired the wrong man. Howie Roseman is absolutely the person that should have been fired over Doug Peterson. And it feels like Doug Peterson, because of what happened in Week 17, has been made the fall guy for how this team currently is running and how it how bleak the potential looks in the future with all this cap hell that they've found themselves in. And oh my god, all the injuries the past two to three seasons for the Philadelphia Eagles, if there's somebody that also deserves to be fired, it's the head trainer for the Philadelphia Eagles because I don't know what they're feeding them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the workouts that they're doing, but the Philadelphia Eagles appear to be made of glass and nothing but glass. I mean, I, I don't know 
how a team could be so injury prone for so long. It's 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 mind blowing to me. So Doug Peterson really is not the person that should be fired. Training staff and Howie Roseman should have been first to go before before Doug Peterson. And and the thing that's mind blowing to me, right, is that Laurie said in his interview or his Zoom call or whatever they're doing these days, probably a Zoom call. Jeffrey Lurie said in his interview explaining his decision, Doug, something along the lines of Doug will be and could be on another NFL team by the end of the week. Then why did you fire him? I Why did you fire him? If you know he's that good, do you know how hard it is to find a good coach, a good head coach in the NFL? It's, it, it's so hard. It is astronomically difficult to get a good coach that knows what he's doing, who has won you a Super Bowl, but you let go of him because your visions don't match. Well, do you think if he's delivered you, I understand you're the owner and at the end of the day, everything that you say goes, but if he has delivered you your first Super Bowl victory, don't you think that you should give him a little bit of leeway? You should give him a little bit of, of trust that, hey, maybe he understands what he's doing. If you know that some other NFL team would be happy to have Peterson, why are you firing him? Why? It makes no sense to me. If Again, if there is anybody that the Eagles should be firing, it's GM Howie Roseman. Um, the Eagles fired the wrong guy. Uh Howie Roseman should be gone. Since 2013, Howie Roseman has drafted a massive total of zero pro bowlers since then. And in fact, a lot of my research that went into the show uh, today was looking into the drafting and the cap space of the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, And, and, and I was, I was pretty shocked yeah, what I found, um, a lot of people, the the main the, the main decisions with Howie Roseman that people are are pointing to is drafting the wrong wide receiver two years in a row, and obviously wide receivers are plentiful. It's very easy to make the wrong decision on the, on these players, but in this case, the players that they have the opportunity to acquire ended up probably being the best wide receiver in that draft class. Uh, of course, the two players that I'm specifically talking about, uh, drafting Jalen Rager over Justin Jefferson this past year. Justin Jefferson, by far and away, probably the best rookie wide receiver. Um, although it is a little bit unfair because Jalen Rager did get hurt, so we don't really know what his full potential is. Um, you, you could still call it a bad draft decision because of how good Justin Jefferson was with the Minnesota Vikings this season in his rookie season. If if I would argue if Justin Herbert didn't have the gargantuan year that he had, we would probably be looking at Justin Jefferson as the uh, rookie of the year. Uh, definitely, definitely, I would say uh, offensive rookie uh, of the year. And then, of course, the other big decision that Howie Roseman made that people are like, ah, you risked badly on that one, buddy. Uh, was drafting J.J. or Sega Whiteside over D.K. Metcalf um, in the second round of the previous year's draft. Uh, that would be 2019. And I'm actually a little bit more 
forgiving on this pick than a lot of other people are. Now, it's easy to look at DK Metcalf and see the freak of nature that he is and say, how could you not draft that? But reality is, is that when you look at the draft, there were actually other six other wide receivers that were drafted in the second round before DK Metcalf. Um, San Francisco drafted Debo Samuel. Tennessee drafted A.J. Brown, which has proven to be a pretty good wide receiver. Kansas City drafted McCole Hardman. Indianapolis drafted Paris Campbell. Of course, Philadelphia drafted J.J. Orsega-Whiteside. And Arizona drafted Andy Isabella. Uh, and, of course, the Seattle Seahawks drafted D.K. Metcalf with the last pick in the second round. So there were other wide receivers other wide receivers taken before DK Metcalf. Howie Roseman is not alone in missing on DK, but still at the position in which you could have taken him, uh, you should have drafted DK, uh, Arizona drafting Andy Isabella, I think is the other questionable draft choice when it comes to wide receivers in that second round. I think they actually picked after, uh, Philadelphia in that situation, but out of all the wide receivers that I just listed, DK Metcalf included, DK Metcalf is the best wide receiver out of that bunch. But uh, to, to to go down Howie Roseman's like as much as I as much as I am am railing him at this point, and I I say he should be fired. He's he's lost it. He's lost his touch. Um, you can't really slight him too badly. For uh, his drafting is it, when it comes to wide receivers in the past two rounds. But what I do want to to point out is I did some further research. Uh, looking at the notable names that the Eagles had drafted since 2014. Um, and the, the, the Eagles have had 48 picks since the 2013 draft. And that draft was, of course, the draft with Lane Johnson, Zach Ertz, uh, pro bowlers, great players. But the draft after that. Uh, every draft after that, the, the, the Philadelphia Eagles have drafted 48 players. 21 of those are still with the team. Now, I, I have a list of all the players here, and a lot of these guys, you won't recognize their name. I thought about reading off the list on the show, but it's like, why bother? At this point, I'm just I'm just sucking air for the, for the hell of it uh, if I'm reading off those names. Um... And, you know, I would argue that a lot of these players probably st wouldn't be with the team, especially those that were drafted uh, a couple of years ago that are still with the team. A lot of these players wouldn't be with the team if the Philadelphia Eagles weren't made of glass and needing to use those players over and over again because they're so injured all the time. Uh, but looking at, looking at the notable names, and by notable names, I mean names that the casual football fan could more than likely recognize. Uh, notable, notable names drafted since 2014. Nelson Aguilar, first round, pick number 20 in 2015. He's now with the Raiders. Eric Rowe, second round, pick 47 in 2015, now with the Dolphins. Jordan Hicks, outside linebacker, third round pick, pick 84, 2015, now with Arizona. Carson Wentz, we know who that is, obviously. <laughs> first round, pick number two, 2016, uh, still with the Eagles. Derek Barnett, first round, Pick 14 in 2017, still with the Eagles. Sidney Jones, second round pick, number 43 um, in 2017, now with the Jaguars. And Dallas Goddard, second round pick, 49 20, uh, in 2018, still with the Eagles. Now, out of all of those names that I just mentioned, I mentioned 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 7 names. Um, only 3 of those are still with the Eagles, and arguably... Would you even want them there? I mean, Carson Wentz, absolutely great rookie season. Uh, 
or not necessarily, I, I think actually it was the year after that that he had the amazing MVP-like season before getting hurt. But apart from that, it's like, I mean, Derek Barnett is a is a good defensive end, but he's not a pro bowler. The drafting hasn't been there really in every position, not just wide receiver for, for the Eagles. But that is all forgivable. That Most of that is forgivable for me. If it weren't for the fact that this season... The Eagles are minus $82 million in cap space. And a market that, mind you, because of the coronavirus, is probably going to depreciate this season instead of, of rise. So this nugget of $82 million in cap space is going to be really, really difficult for the Eagles to climb out of. And yeah, something, something to note, if, if Doug Peterson really wanted to try and win now instead of rebuild and win in a few years, like Lurie suggests that he wanted and disagreed with Peterson on, Peterson is out of his mind if he's going to try and reload with the Eagles with negative $82 million in cap space, even if it's not his fault that it's this way, again, it's Howie Roseman's fault, which is why Howie Roseman deserved to be fired over Doug Peterson. Even though it's not Doug Peterson's fault, the vision of trying to win in 2021 would have been nearly impossible to achieve. I mean, they would have actually had to gut the roster. Now, obviously, the first move that probably would have happened is they're trading away Wes, they're trading away his massive contract. But the next highest played player, player on the team, I believe, was Derek Barnett at $9.7 million a year. So his contract is probably up. They'd probably lose him in free agency. Excuse me. They would probably lose him in free agency as well. So things are things are not sunny in Philadelphia. Um, and they they wouldn't be for a long time uh, if, 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 if Doug tried to really maneuver the roster and, and and try to win now. Now, it, 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 that's kind of contradictory to my point that Doug Peterson didn't deserve to be fired. And the reason, of course, for his firing being that Lurie and Doug had different visions, just because that those two disagreed on their visions for the team doesn't mean that you should fire him. In that sense, I mean, out of all the things to fire a head coach for, disagreement in vision... Like I said earlier, this man has delivered you the only Lombardi trophy in your franchise history, and you let him go because you disagree with his vision for the football team. Even if you may be right, even if you may be taking a look at the situation and saying, we have negative $82 million in cap space, we cannot produce a team that's good enough to win the Super Bowl, especially with the teams that are out there right now in the NFC. Tampa Bay, Green Bay. New Orleans. Hell, Washington in their own division. You know. Even if even if that vision discrepancy is there, that's still not enough reason to fire Doug Peterson for for things that are not his fault. Again, they fired the wrong guy. Should have been Howie Roseman. The head trainer for the Eagles should probably go to, considering that uh the Philadelphia Eagles break arms and legs and tear ECLs like it's legitimately their job, which is unfortunate for the players. I mean, if you're going to Philadelphia, you got to be scared. You got to be scared that you're gonna either leave the field uh, in, in, on a cart or or leave with some kind of injury, or you're gonna be part of a locker room that's 
uh, having to put up with a uh, a baby in Carson Wentz and all of his drama. Um, but unfortunate for Doug Peterson, I assume that he's probably going to wind up on the New York Jets in some fashion. Joe Douglas and Doug Peterson have a very good relationship. That would that would be very interesting to me if Doug Peterson became the head coach of the New York Jets. Uh, I don't want I don't I don't want to go and say too much about this because I would have to think on it further and I don't want to sell my opinion on it without really giving it much thought. But at first glance, and as I'm thinking about it off the top of my head, Doug Peterson in New York would not be so bad. I think that's a good guy for the job. It wouldn't. It would be a bad situation for him, probably, in terms of going for what he had in Philadelphia to go into the New York Jets, which is obviously an abysmal wasteland that hardly nobody wants to go to. But hey, depending on who they draft, it could be something beneficial for Doug Peterson. If they draft a Justin Fields, a new quarterback, you know, it could be something. It could be something. Doug Peterson genu- generally has had a bunch of success despite the season. I mean, he made the playoffs two out of the four seasons. And of course, as I've been saying, he's won a Super Bowl. He's got a good relationship with GM of the New York Jets and Joe Douglas. It could happen. But as it stands now, the Philadelphia Eagles, they fired the wrong person. Now we move on to, uh, or we move from firing of the wrong person to the hiring of the wrong person. In the same division as the Eagles, um, the Dallas Cowboys hired Dan Quinn as their defensive coordinator on Tuesday, or maybe that was also late Monday news as well. I think it happened on Tuesday, but uh, the Cowboys hiring Dan Quinn to defensive coordinator position. Obviously, Dan Quinn, the former head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, he got fired five games into the season, replaced by Morris. Dan Quinn, um, famous for, well, I want to, I want to say he's famous for, for a couple of things. One of them really good and one of them really bad. Obviously the loss in Super Bowl 51 to the Patriots, the largest comeback in Super Bowl history. Uh, that's, that's something that I think he's going to be remembered for, unfortunately for him for the rest of his life. Um, but the other thing that Dan Quinn was remembered for was his success with the Legion of Boom in Seattle. He was the defensive coordinator uh, from 2013 20 to uh, 2015 with the Seattle Seahawks. He took over for Gus Bradley when Gus Bradley went to be the Jacksonville Jaguars head coach for a couple of years. Jerry Jones has a really bad habit of hiring somebody that was good 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Exactly. Uh, it is not an accurate number, but it just feels like whoever was relevant in the last decade is who Jerry Jones wants to hire right now. (laughs) You've seen that with his, with his, his hiring of Mike McCarthy. And you can kind of see it again with Dan Quinn. Jerry Jones is very absent minded when it comes to recent NFL history. And, you know, I'm sitting here saying, and preparing to say that Dan Quinn is a bad hire, but you could really you could really make the argument that Dan Quinn is a bad hire based on what we already know about the Mike McCarthy hire. Mike McCarthy, Mike McCarthy hired uh, last season after a year off from coaching. He was fired by the Green Bay Packers uh, in the middle of the season. First coach, I believe, that they ever fired in the middle of the season. By the way, I remember that being 
I remember reading that somewhere. First coach that they fired in the middle of the season takes a year off from coaching, apparently changes his ways and, and changes and becomes more receptive to analytics, but still looks like a dead doorknob uh, coaching on the sideline. For the same reason that Mike McCarthy was a bad hire, it's the same reason that Dan Quinn is a bad hire. And that's that Dan Quinn and Mike McCarthy both had really great accomplishments because of other people. Mike McCarthy winning a Super Bowl in 2010, the 2010-2011 season with the Green Bay Packers, absolutely carried by Aaron Rodgers and a really, really good Green Bay Packers defense. A Green Bay Packers defense that had four pro bowlers, uh, Clay Matthews, um, Charles Woodson, Nick Collins, and uh, Traymond Williams. Four pro bowlers on defense that year for the Green Bay Packers, and Aaron Rodgers, who is one of the all-time greats, and he's not even done yet. All-time greats, first ballot Hall of Famer, Aaron Rodgers, delivered Mike McCarthy to that Super Bowl victory against the Steelers in 2010-2011 season. And since then, for Mike McCarthy, it's it's been a series of wasted years with Aaron Rodgers in his prime. They went 15-1 next season and lost in the wild card round, I believe. Have it in my notes here somewhere. Yeah, 15 and 1, lost early in the playoffs, and they continue to lose early in the playoffs despite having pretty good seasons. They missed the playoffs straight out one year, but they completely wasted Aaron Rodgers in his prime, which is infuriating to me. I mean, you felt like the Packers were going to win more than one Super Bowl, and I think a lot of people would agree with the argument that they didn't win more Super Bowls because of Mike McCarthy. And his inability to coach and adapt to the NFL. Mike McCarthy's greatest accomplishment, or yeah, no, I would, I, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick to that. His greatest accomplishment is because of Aaron Rodgers and a really good defense with four Pro Bowlers coached by Mike Nolan. And I'll take everything that I just said about my, Mike McCarthy, and then transfer that over to Dan Quinn. Dan Quinn was a defensive line coach for Seattle. Early, I believe, in like 2009-2010. Went to University of Florida, was a defensive line coach at University of Florida before coming back to Seattle to take over the defense that was uh, organized and coached by Gus Bradley, who, as I said earlier, went to go coach the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, that 2013 Seattle defense was one of the greatest defenses of all time and was already set up before Dan Quinn even got there. That 2013 Legion of Boom Seattle Seahawks defense was already there before Dan Quinn got there. And, hell, he didn't even really... I mean, sure, you can you can make the argument defensive scheme matters a lot, but when you have the talent on the defense like that, you almost don't even really need to do anything. And that's the same that's the same thing that you can apply to Mike McCarthy. When you have talent like Aaron Rodgers, Greg Jennings, Jordy Nelson, and then the four Pro Bowlers on defense, it's like, well, God, I could go and coach that team and make a super, make it to a Super Bowl and win it. I mean, talent absolutely matters. Coaching matters, sure, but talent absolutely matters. And when you have a freak combination of talent like that, like Dan Quinn did in Seattle in 2013, 
like Mike McCarthy did with the Packers in 2011. It's hard. It, it's very easy to have your your achievements look much better than they actually are. And I would point to Adam Gase, who had a fantastic year with Peyton Manning, and that one year with Peyton Manning was able to land him not only one, but two head coaching jobs in the NFL, and he's potentially one of the worst coaches in NFL history. And I, and I say this because when you look at Dan Quinn in his product in Atlanta, his supposed fantastic defensive mind, the, the Atlanta Fal- Falcons only had a top five defense one year that Dan Quinn was head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. And that wasn't the year that they made it to the Super Bowl. The offense was a top five was a top five ranked offense in the NFL the year they made it to the Super Bowl. The offense is the reason why the Falcons made it to the Super Bowl that year, not the defense. Again, I think if I remember the stats correctly, the Atlanta Falcons only had a top five defense one year that Dan Quinn was head coach, as opposed to the three straight years that the Seattle Seahawks had a top five defense because of the players that were there and part of the Legion of Boom. So, Wrapping back around on this racetrack, back to Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones is probably looking at it as like, well, I remember Dan Quinn. His defenses were really good. Last time I was probably looking for a defensive coordinator. I'll hire Dan Quinn, especially because he got fired. Oh, Mike McCarthy uh, was a was a great coach for Green Bay last time I was looking for a head coach. Let me fi- or Let me hire him. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is looking at Dallas and laughing because, hey, these guys are, their achievements are specifically achieved because they had miraculously, a miraculous combination of talent that would be hard to find anywhere else. So I'm taking a look at this hire and I'm saying, well, it could be okay, but is it the best hire? No. It's it's not. Uh, I feel I feel like Cowboys fans are probably just like, oh god, just another meh hire. Like, the, it feels like Jerry Jones takes no steps in figuring out the best hire for his team. If it, it literally feels like he sits in his office for about fifteen minutes and says, hmm, you know who who was who was good about ten years ago? The last time I was looking for a position coach. Dan Quinn, his defenses in Seattle were some of the best defenses in the history of the NFL. He's right, but he's right for the wrong reasons. So Dan Quinn getting hired in Dallas, I think is a mistake. I think they absolutely could have found a better person for the job. I And, and for the record, I hope I'm wrong. Like, I never want to wish bad, uh, a bad, you know, a failure on anybody. I hope Dan Quinn goes to the Cowboys and nails it. I hope, I hope the, the Dallas Cowboys have a great defense because of Dan Quinn. They've got the players, the Marcus Lawrence, uh, Lawrence, Jalen Smith, Leighton Vander Esch. They've got great players. It has the potential to be really good. And I think if anybody's saying anything positive about this hire, they are going to be looking at the potential and saying, okay, well, look at all these players. Dan Quinn with these good players could be something really good because he has had defenses in the past that were really good. But again, they were in the past, and those Seattle Seahawks defenses were 
a combination of freak athletes coming together at a time which is very rare in the history of the NFL. So, again, I hope it works out. I don't think it will. Uh, I want to, before we move on to the the NPA uh, for the last segment of the show, I do want to quickly address uh, one of the stories or one of the, one of the segments that we had on Monday's show. Uh, it was the first segment of the show. It was the highlight of the show, top segment, um, talking about the image problem with the Pittsburgh Steelers and how I felt that really the, the difference between the team that went 11-0 to start the season and the team that finished 1-5 were vastly different because of the ego and image problem that the Pittsburgh Steelers have built up over the past three or four years. And I, I don't say this in a, oh, I told you so kind of fashion, but my, my opinion was even more solidified when I saw the comment, comments that Juju Smith-Schuster and Chase Claypool made uh, about the game with the Browns uh, on Monday. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster uh, essentially said, yeah, I, I don't regret what I said, but they came out and they played a hell of a game and they beat us. And, you know, that's kind of the philosophy change that I was looking for, and I was saying, this is what a loss will do. It'll humble somebody like Smith-Schuster, who was really uh, the, the catalyst for a lot of the angst and the and the irritation against the Pittsburgh Steelers this year, dancing on logos, being a social media star, um, talking all this ish. You know, he, he came out and said, yeah, they came, they smacked us in the mouth. Hopefully they do it again next week to validate that it wasn't just a fluke. Um, so, I mean, there's still a little bit of like a, eh, 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 we, we, we lost, but, you know, hey, good job for them. They better not blow it next week, you know. But it's still, it's still an ideology shift that I think needs to happen for this young crew, this young group of players. Now, on the, on the opposite side, Chase Claypool said, Exactly the opposite thing and the exact wrong thing to say. Said something along the lines of, like an Instagram live video or something. Said, the Browns are going to get clapped next week. Okay? Uh, Homie, that's not the point. Who cares? I mean, you would have gotten clapped going to Kansas City next week too. You know, Kansas City is probably the best team in the AFC. Like, anybody who travels to Kansas City could have the potential to get completely clapped. And you especially shouldn't be saying that because you lost. You don't validate your loss. You don't accept your loss. You're saying, man, whatever, we lost. But, hey, they're going to get their butts kicked next week. Yeah, but you are but you are still not the team that's traveling to even be able to have the opportunity to compete next week. You lost. And that... Refusing to accept loss, that that image problem, that ego problem, being unable to accept loss and try and get better. And maybe I'm just, you know, I'm I'm throwing my fishing line a little bit too deep in the ocean here, trying to trying to fish for something that maybe is a little bit too far out of reach. But if this is the attitude of the young players of the Pittsburgh Steelers, it is no wonder that they started the season eleven and zero. And just could not mentally get it together after that first loss. Uh, it, it, it's, I, I, I saw the comments and I'm like, come on, dude. Like, really? Like, I, I understand you're a rookie. I understand he's probably younger than I am. 
So the maturity might not be there, but it's like, dude, you lost. You can't go and say, well, it's okay. Well, it's a tough loss. It sucks. But hey, at least they're going to lose next week. It's like, that's not the point. You still lost. Who cares if they may lose next week, which they may lose next week. At least they are going to be able to have the opportunity to compete next week. And more importantly, they just clapped you. So, you know. Very, very uh, validating comments by the young wide receiver core for, for, for Pittsburgh, kind of validating my opinion that the Pittsburgh Steelers have some philosophy, some ideology, and some image issues to work out before they can be the Pittsburgh Steelers that we know and expect them to be again. Um, last last uh, topic uh, of the show today, I, I said we were going to talk about some NBA on Monday. We are going to talk about some NBA um, unfortunately not something that people enjoy talking about, but unfortunately we have to talk about it. Um, feels like we've been talking about it for a year straight now. Again, I said at the top of the show, I cannot wait to stop talking about COVID. Uh, but here we are again, talking about COVID. Uh, the NBA right now is having a, a bit of an outbreak. I think that's a pretty good wording for it. They're having a, bi- a bit of an outbreak when, uh, uh, with the coronavirus, uh, ballooning from maybe 10 to 15 cases on Thursday or Friday to 34 by the end of Monday. And this is really disappointing to me because it's the NBA. It's the NBA. They were the most proactive league. They were on top of coronavirus and the bubble was very successful. So... To sit here and say, man, the NBA has got to do better with the coronavirus is kind of ironic to me, considering that they were the most cautious. They put a plan together. Adam Silver is a great commissioner for the NBA. He's got his head on straight. They were doing great things. And keep in mind, I'm saying this with the knowledge that as of Tuesday, uh, board of Directors, Players Association, everybody met together, and there are new protocols, and I have them here in my notes. Uh, new NBA protocols uh, saying players and staff must remain at their residence or hotel other for, for no other reason other than to go to team activities, go for exercise outside, or go to essential activities, which essentially boils down to going to the grocery store. Players are also... Our pregame meetings in the locker room are now limited to the 10 minutes and all attendees must wear a mask. Players must now limit pre and postgame interactions to elbow or fist bumps to avoid extended socializing and I'm assuming to prevent contact tracing and just an overall tightening on mask wearing. So as much as I'm sitting here and saying the NBA has to do better, they are doing better. But that's the the corporate side of the league. The players have to do better as well. And it's the players that specifically I'm disappointed in. You know, you go from a bubble format. You're not allowed to see your family all that often. You're allowed a couple of guests. You know, you take a look at somebody like Paul George who had a documented depression while in the bubble. You take a look at these guys and you say... Well, now that they're now that they're out of the bubble, they have a little bit of freedom. They should use it wisely. And then you have people like Kyrie Irving that, 
you know, said he was leaving. He had to not play a game for the Nets because of personal reasons. And, you know, reports come out that he's at a birthday party not wearing a mask with his sister. I mean, like, how can you take your position for granted? Can you take what is given to you for granted anymore, especially with COVID around? I don't understand why. I don't understand the thought process. Like, why are players taking all of this for granted? And it's clearly on the players for doing this because, sure, you know, COVID uh, positive cases are going to pop up uh, this season. I'm sure of it. It is very difficult to have a format like the bubble at this at at the scale that it would have to be at to or in order to have a completely clean NBA season. Cases are going to pop up for sure. But the fact that they're continuing to pile up tells me that players are not taking this serious as seriously as they should and it's bewildering to me again as to why this is the case. Considering that the NBA was the best league, the most proactive league, the most cautious league in terms of preventing the spread of the virus, but also delivering on their product. And there there are billions of dollars at stake here. You know, the NBA shuts down for two weeks and all hell could break loose. Sponsorships, TV deals, player contracts. Uh, not to mention the money that the league is already using due to lack of fans. Nobody's purchasing game tickets except except for teams that are allowing a couple of uh, family members and, and fans trickle in. The NBA players have to do better. It, and it's like, I, I don't know if the players that had the coronavirus in, in, in March and throughout the last seven months saying, well, I got it. I don't need to be careful anymore. And are just not being careful. I don't. I, I want to be careful in what I say here. I don't know the lot. I don't understand the logic behind that. In fact, I think it borderlines on stupidity that you would think that. Well, I got it once. Surely I can't get it again. And then, of course, you put your entire team at risk for people that have not gotten it. And also, it's not just the players. It's everybody that the players also come in contact with. I. It borderlines on stupidity to think. That way, if the NBA players are thinking that way, which the rising cases suggest to me that a fair number of players at least are thinking that way, and it's not and it's not specifically cases of coronavirus. The number 34 that was th- thrown around on Monday is the number of players that are in COVID precaution and safety protocol, which means they're either not playing, they're on the they're on the COVID reserve list, they actually have the virus, or they're just holding it being held out be- just to be safe, you know. The NBA players and the NBA have to do better. The NBA, the corporate side, they are taking the steps that they need to in order to be better and safer about the virus. They're upping the protocols, but it's just funny to me. It's all, it's it's irritating almost that it's like, okay, we, we had a successful bubble. We know what it takes to have a clean league, a clean year, a clean 50-game season, or, or however many games they're playing. We know what it takes. Here is what we need from you. We have been through this before. We have it all lined out. And then just to have players and, and coaches and say, nah, I already got it once. I can't really, I, I don't think I'll get it again. Or, uh, I don't really need to go a ma- need to wear a mask. Uh, 
I can have a close friend as <laughs> it's really funny because in watching segments preparing for the show, Rachel Nichols has done a great segment on uh, the coronavirus and these rising cases on ESPN. She goes, and a special friend in quotations, meaning what everybody knows that uh, it, it, it means, which means that the NBA players are having somebody special in their bedroom, their hotel room. The NBA players need to do better. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that Adam Silver and the NBA are starting to tie it down because it's clear that, you know, I don't know. I feel, I feel like the NBA are dealing with children at this point. It's like, okay, you know, no drawing on the walls. We know this. We've been over this. And then... You know, somebody goes and draws on the, draws a smiley face on the wall saying, eh, you know, I, I, I already got in trouble for it once. There's no way that I can get in trouble for it again. You know, it, 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 like, I know that's a stupid example, but that's kind of like the mental gymnastics that are being taken right now, I feel like, with the situation. Like, just wear your mask, be careful, so you don't spread the virus, you don't get contact tracing, and obviously there are some situations in which it's not your fault, you do everything that you need to, and specifically here I'm talking about Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal, or, or, or excuse me, Jason Tatum and Bradley Beal. Sometimes you're going to do things and it's not your fault. Wear your mask, be protective, if not for you, if not for your team, do it for your family and for your teammates' families. Like, it's not that hard. Like, I... I on the one hand, it's like, it's not that hard to make sure that this is all contained. But on the other hand, I'm just a person in my room talking to a camera and a microphone and talking to all of you. I've got no idea about the greater repercussions of running a complete league like the NBA. So maybe, so maybe it's not all black and white as I'm making it out to be, but just wear your damn mask. It's simple as that. Wear your mask. Be careful. Go to the grocery store. Get your groceries. You know, try and get some time with your families if you can. But if you're if 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 players are going to treat this as childishly as they have and do it for everybody else, then I guess that's the way that it's got to be. Uh, that's the show today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening with me. I really appreciate you all being here. Of course, the show is on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the highlights of this show will be up on YouTube by this afternoon. Thank you so much for watch. Uh, uh, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a really fun show. I had a lot of fun talking with you all about uh, the various news of sports happening over the past couple of days. Uh, make sure that you follow the podcast on all social media and everything. And um, I will see you all on Friday. So, on behalf of Hard Headed Sports, this has been the second episode of Hard Headed Sports. My name is Nick Ryan. Have a nice day and stay hard headed. <laughs>